Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week we talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors is episode. ChargeBee is the leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Sebastian Gabor, co-founder and CEO of Digitale. Used by 800 animal hospitals in over 16 markets, Digitale is is a company that's building an all-in-one platform for animal hospitals. Sebastian and his co-founders started the company in Romania in 2018 and just raised their Series A of $11 million from Atomico this year, five years after co-founding the company. Sebastian has actually been a serial entrepreneur for most of his career, having started his first company in 2011. He will share practical and tactical advice on product market fit, hiring, culture, fundraising, and more. So this is going to be an incredibly jam-packed episode. So welcome, Sebastian. Hi, Anita. Thank you for inviting me. Great to be here. Great. So let's start off with a quick background. How did you get to build a platform for the pet care industry? Did you have any experience with it? How did that all come about? Oh, that was a funny story. It all started in 2017 when together with Alexandra, my co-founder, we adopted a puppy. We went to a, to a vet practice. And you know, when you have a puppy, you need to go through a vaccination plan. And we went to the first visit, we went to the second visit. And unfortunately, at the end of the second visit, we got on a sticky note, the date when we need to go the next time. We left that note on a shelf somewhere. And unfortunately, we forgot about it. There was nothing in the calendar. So again, nothing to help us out. And we really thought that the clinic will call us to tell us when we need to schedule the next one. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And we ended up missing the appointment. So we had to redo the entire plan. And that was the basically the entry to the space and understanding what's the status quo, the fact that vets are in burnout, very staff shortage, and most importantly, they don't have the tools to actually help pet parents have the experience they need nowadays. And that was the trigger for us starting exploring more and understanding that there is a space for a 10 times better tool to help them in what they do so they can spend more time with patients and less time worrying about the pet parent experience. That's really fascinating, Sebastian, because a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interview typically have felt the pain, which I guess you did as well as an end user, but a lot of them have some domain expertise in the area that they start a business in. But it sounds to me like, yes, you felt the pain from an end user perspective, but you had zero idea of how the veterinary practices actually work. And here you are building software for it. I would love to hear a little bit more about how you went about actually building the platform, being an outsider to the industry. I guess that was also one of the points where we had a chance to do our fair share of mistakes. But uh, at least when we started, Steve Blank was quite popular and he had a saying with God of the building and I can talk with clients. And I think the fact that we didn't have practical in-hospital experience 
that forced us to ask more questions, to be, to pay more attention to what clients are saying. And so from one perspective, I think that came as an advantage, as opposed to when you go into solving a problem with already preconceived ideas. In this case, we couldn't, we couldn't do that because we had no preconceived ideas. Now, the challenge there, I think, is understanding who are your actual ITP for ideal customer personas that you want to help. Because this was something that actually happened to us at the beginning is that I, I still remember like our first 100 clients, I, I know all of them by, by heart, but I remember our 10th client was someone that wasn't an ideal customer. An ideal as in not the right stage, they can be late majority, not early adopters, uh, they can be supportive or they can be not supportive and put you down all the time. And I remember the team was spending quite a lot of time with, with us clients and wasn't getting neither energy nor insights, nothing to help us push forward. And it got to a point where we were like low on resources, like morally, emotionally, everything. And it almost broke us, but we had the courage. So again, investors helped us a lot, encouraging us, um, other clients. We had the courage to what we call now firing a customer, uh, but basically going to customers, admitting like, Hey, it's not the right, we're not the right solution for you. We're not the right company with whom you can work. We can't continue. If you want to use the solution, that's great, but we can't offer you the level of support that you'd probably need. And funny enough, you know what happened? What? He still uses the platform, oh. but we had a chance to reset expectations and to, to basically start on a better path. And that gave us a lot more time to spend with clients that actually loved what we were doing. And there was another thing that I really love is that the best client you have, they will know better what you need to build than you do. And it's true. A lot of the supervisionary clients that we have that we owe a lot to them, they really guide us day-to-day on how digital would look like in the future. I think this ICP is such an important thing for an early stage startup to nail. Tell me a little bit more about how you figured out who your ICP was. How did you go about that process? Yeah, at, at that time, I, we didn't have a clear vision on what it is. We just had some guiding principles. We knew that we're starting this for, to improve the quality of life for pets. And to do that, we had to help pet parents and we had to help vets. So it's a multi-stakeholder market. And one core belief was that veterinarians are at the center of the ecosystem. So the only way you can actually have a meaningful impact in the industry is by helping them first. That's how we ended up building the, uh, the practice management system. So by doing this, we had a couple of basically narrowing down the segments. One was general practitioners because they're the ones that have a long-term relationship with the pet parents. So as opposed to my identity clinic that are a different segment of the market. Then we realized that our clients, our ideal clients are the ones that are more tech friendly and the ones that actually care about the experience of the pet friend, because there are some clinics that it's not on their focus and they wouldn't appreciate the things that we're building, the automation that we bring and the experience that they can improve with us. So then by adding all these together, we started understanding, okay, this is how a client looks like, but it didn't, we didn't end up actually understanding our ICPs until later down the road. And this was like year three, when we had enough, let's say what we would call pattern recognition. So seeing enough clients and understanding their archetypes or personas to see that, okay, this is a, a two vet practice. It's a, a couple of vets that they own the practice and they're building this as a mom and pop store, or it's a, a feedback chain that wants to grow into a multi-location setup. And these are the things that they, they care about. So it, it was later down the road when we actually had the ability to, to create sub-segments and ICP. So would you say that in general, 
the ICP really is from experience. You can't do something before to identify your ICP earlier. Would that be an accurate statement? Yes, we didn't find the, the magic book for this, but I think the only part that we were doing that was helpful is all the time having an open mind and putting them into buckets. So we were grouping basically the problems that we're trying to solve and saying, okay, we met another clinic, where would they fit? Okay, bucket one, because they care about client communication. And then grouping everyone by those features that needs that we were solving. Yeah, that was the other question I had was when it came to product, you are trying to do an all-in-one, everything from communication and scheduling to um, the mobile app for the parents. There's so much in there. Again, being a very early stage startup, you have to be hyper-focused on a few things. How did you determine again, what was your MVP? That was another tough one. So first, I think that the decision were more, more, was more between building an operating system versus building an add-on. And these come, they come with, again, pros and cons. If you build an add-on, you get distribution a lot faster because it's less involvement, less product to be built a lot easier. So you get scale faster, uh, but you have less control. And there's so many risks on, on top of that. So basically the operating systems can at any time cut the access for you. So basically everything you're building can go to wait. And second one is you can't control the experience. And controlling the experience was an important factor of what we were building. So again, this together with a couple of other reasons, we went down the path of building an operating system. And then as you were saying, the challenge is that you need to build so many features and solve so many problems. And early days when we're going to clients, every time we wanted to, to get a new client and to make a sell, they were always saying, oh, we would love to use your system if, but if you would have also this feature, only if you had another one and always you add more things. And I think that what really got us to, to the next stage was the fact that we had a really strong product team, able to deliver fast and to a degree of quality where that was acceptable for them to use. And of course, you have this huge debate about around going vertical or going horizontal. But our philosophy was always, especially in the early days, is that build features that solve the problem, not necessarily do it in an extremely great way, but solve the problem and have the required feature set to be able to make the sell. And then you can start building on top. And as, as we develop, and probably this can be a, a conversation over a couple of hours just on, on the product strategy, but as you grow, then you need to define what's your key feature that clients come for and what are the other features that they stay for. And that was a whole different debate to, to figure out. That's really interesting what they come for and what they stay for. Wouldn't it be the same thing? What would be the difference between the two? Not always. Well, if they, they realize they spend too much time on taking appointment via phone and they need to switch to an online booking system. And this way they save, again, 60% of, of time spent on the phone. However, they might stay for the fact that um, clients leave with uh, all the discharge notes and the medical notes directly in their app without them needing to type everything in. So everything is automated. And that feeling that they get about everything feeling smooth, that's the feeling they stay for. So that's why it, it's a bit of, of a different situation. Understood. Understood. Cool. Yeah, I, I didn't think about um, differentiating between the two, but I can see what you mean. Okay. I remember when you and I spoke first, you also said something about how you built a platform by not listening to customers. Tell me a little bit more about what you meant there. So this challenge was about clients always ask for, for more features. And sometimes they were asking for things that they 
thought our solution is their problem. And this is again, with the product hat is the first thing you need to keep in mind is that always ask why like 500 times until they actually end up telling you what's their real pain point. And so in a nutshell, in the early days, and especially now when we're dealing at a larger scale, we never ask what feature do you need or anything related to that. We always ask and describe what's the pain point that they're seeing in their day-to-day activity. And from there, we ask them to let us, to trust us and to let us design the solution for what they need. But going back to, to the early days, especially to the first 20, 30 clients, they was they were always coming with a predefined mind as in, I don't know, I need an inventory component to do this. And they actually needed something totally else. They needed maybe a way to go for product wait, wait when, you know, we have expiry dates and they can't track them and then they end up losing a lot of stock that they have. But they, they thought that an inventory tool would be something that solves, but maybe they needed the report or some alerts or something else. So that was um, the whole idea of thinking and pain point rather than in a wish list of features. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the early journey in terms of funding. Like, it looks like you spent actually a lot of time initially researching, talking to customers, figuring out your ICP, MVP, et cetera. Where did the money come from? How did you convince people to give you seed money, given that you don't have any domain expertise in this area? Yeah. So our first year, we were fully bootstrapped. And even in the businesses that I started before, there were bootstrap businesses. So again, you get a, a big sense of maximizing value for, for money and doing things really calculated. So after our first year, we started, we already had clients. We already had some signs of product market fit in some areas. And our first funding was actually a pre-seed investment from uh, Fast Track Malmo. So that was one of the accelerators that we've been part of, amazing experience. And, in Sweden. So that was when we raised 150K. And with that funding, we were able to show that there is a need, not only locally in the markets where we were then, but internationally, and that we can solve for that problem. And basically at the time we ended up raising our seed round, we already could show that there is a big need in the market, especially in larger markets for US, Canada, UK, Australia, and a couple of other ones where the product that we built as a team has a big chance of becoming a market fair leader. So that was the, at least the challenge for the team round. How did you do that? It sound, you, you make it sound, again, so easy to show that there's a huge market, especially outside of Romania, where you may know the environment and the veterinary practices. How did you show that there is this market outside for which your solution would be a good fit, A? And B, how, could you, how did you convince them that you were the people that could actually fulfill that need. Yeah. So leaving a bit the Series A hat, and it's always it's easier to look back and to say, oh, this is how things happened. And reality is that when we were at the stage, the only thing that mattered was clients and onboarding clients. That was the sole focus that we had. And we were quite religious about this part. And honestly, I know investors always ask you to think of more things and always prove more things, but Unfortunately, you don't have bandwidth during the day. It's when you're trying to tackle new clients, product, and, and all the other things at the same time. So for us, we were doubling down. Like if everything else fails, what's the only thing that matters? And the only thing that mattered was adding one more client, even we can actually improve their life in a meaningful way. But the one tactical thing that we did, the team did really well, was that in our second year, we already posted the product on online directories. 
And this is where, how basically clients from 16 markets ended up finding about digital. And that's how we ended up working with them. And that was the hard actual proof for the investors that, okay, digital now isn't working with clients in 16 markets. Oh, wow. So what kind of online communities, like Hacker News and Product it Hunt? De it, depends, it depends on the industry. So most likely for tech product, that would be a really good uh, source for us it was Captera, Vive, G2. So those are like software online directories for different verticals. And so people found you there and downloaded and started using you and you were able to service them from Romania. Exactly. Yeah. We were able to, at that time, sell even in the US from Romania. And we have tons of stories of trying to sell and clients thinking that at least the price when they were selling at and the fact they were from Romania, they were instantly thinking that we're dodgy and that we're a solution coming to steal all their data. And it took so much time to start building for trust and to start understanding how to speak the local language. Yeah. Let's keep to the theme of fundraising a bit longer. I know that initially when you were raising your seed round, you said that you went to fundraise, but you feel like you went too early and couldn't fundraise. Can you talk a little bit about your seed fundraising experience and maybe some tactical do's and don'ts of what other entrepreneurs should think about? Absolutely. So to give also some reference points for for people that are listening now, this was in 2021. So we were already two and a half years in. We were just wrapping up um, Accelerator from Fast Track Mall. So demo day was getting close. And we were passing 10, 10 KMRR at that time. And at least for how the market was during that year, once you were passing 10 KMRR, you were looking at the potential seed round uh, as long as you have a lot of other indicators. But it was uh, the right stage. So we got a lot of advice to maybe push and to be more bold about raising earlier. And we want to take advantage of the demo day. So we went out on, on the market, starting to talk with investors. However, we weren't really ready. We hoped we were ready, but we weren't. And this meant we still didn't have the right metrics. We still didn't show growth in the market where we, that we started targeting. We still didn't have a clear story and a clear reasoning for doing things. And there's, there are probably 200 other things that we didn't have ready, but because we went too early, we weren't able to really convince them. And the biggest challenge that we ended up facing was the fact that the market started perceiving us as the startup that went out to raise and couldn't. So we started having a red flag next to our name for every investor that was looking at us. And that was the moment when we said, okay, let's stop. Think through maybe a bit more replant things and maybe come back to this in six months. And we were lucky enough that we had enough runway, we had enough firepower to continue six months and to start re-planning for how do we go about the next stage. So when was the next stage? What did you need? What did you have? I guess you had gone through enough of the initial meetings to know what you needed to have to successfully fundraise your seed. So can you tell me when you did do the seed fundraising? What do you feel you had that helped you to fundraise? So the biggest difference from the first time when we went out and the second time we actually were able to do it, I, I think actually there were two, two big differences. One was that we ended up doubling the MRR. So the MRR was a big thing that we ended up growing. And more significantly that the growth came from US. So we were showing that in the market that we want to tackle, we actually can start growing there 
at a faster scale, at a faster pace. And the second one was that, and this was the painful part because it took almost 85 notes to get there, was to uh, being able to communicate better the story, why we're there and how we're going through to the next stage. And this really took a lot of exercise and practice, which again, looking backward, we could have done it differently, but at that stage for us, it took almost 85 no's to get wow. there. How did you keep going? 85 no's. Um, and, yeah, probably there are two things. One, and the most, that's actually the most powerful one was the team. Knowing that the team is not giving up, continuously working, focusing on what we're building and the fact that they're relying on to not give up the same way we, everyone else is relying on them to not give up. And the second one that was really helpful was that we had a lot of clients reaching out and saying, thank you for what we're building. And that was the second boost of morale and motivation to not give up. Let me just finish with fundraising and then we're going yep. to talk about this team. The Series A, was that a different journey having gone through what you did with Seed? This is a more tricky question because it really depends on the market landscape when you're trying to raise. So we, we raised now at the beginning of this year and the market was definitely not easy. And what this means is that the box gets higher and higher all the time. So you need to after, you basically need to remove a lot of the risk that the investor might have when investing in it. But a couple of things that really helped us fundraise was one, definitely were the numbers. So we had our numbers straight and we could show a clear, not only growth, but also passive even higher growth. And I know this sounds super difficult when you're down there in the trenches and you're wondering, can I get the next client and what they do? But this was key for us to actually fundraise in that type of environment. The second one was the market demands for what we were doing. And this was something you can show in a lot of different ways, but showing the love that you have from clients, showing investors how, even if you go to cold calling to a client, how they would be receptive to what you're doing. So you can be really creative around uh, those things. And I think the third important part for, for series day is showing that the team is at, and you are ready to scale. As mm -hmm. in, it's no longer a question of product market fit, about you solving a problem. It's showing about, it, it's more about being able to replicate the growth via different growth channels, method, but just being able to do this at, at scale. It's basically solving for another problem of, of the stage in startups. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote that I saw in one of your, I think it was your LinkedIn profile where you said, it's easy to start a company, but it's much more challenging to grow a company. So let's talk about That's growth it. and how did you get your initial buyers um, in your initial phase when you were trying to figure out product market fit? Let's start there. Our initial buyers, that's another funny story. So initial, basically our first 100 clients, we literally knocked on their doors until they, they said yes. And then we were those annoying people that you want to hang up when you see them calling. But that's what we did. We, we knew that we're building something that will help them. It, it required a lot of education. And that's another, I think, the important topic is that you need to understand if you're in a market where you educate clients or in your, if you're in a market where you're about winning against competition. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning in our market, it was education. So we had to have a lot of patience, had to educate, 
the good part is that, again, you don't have competition, but it takes so much time and effort to create that communication with, with clients. So it was basically a lot of, a lot of knocking on doors and yeah, not. I know that in the UK, for example, I think there's only a handful of veterinary practices and it's like a chain. Mm-hmm. So wondering, did you have a hundred veterinary practices in Romania that you could actually go and knock on doors? Yes. And in Romania, yes, because again, it wasn't a consolidated markets. It was a lot of independent clinics. It was a lot easier to do that at that time. Okay. Again, this is maybe I'll, I'll dive a bit deeper. Maybe it's helpful for other ones that are in the same position, but looking backwards, we went bottom up approach, right? So we started with the smallest client and type of client that we can work with. And then as we developed the product, we started working with larger persona mm-hmm. of, of clients. And to put it simply, at the beginning, we were working with one vet practices or even mobile vet. And then started working with two vet practices, three vet practices, oh. because the more vet they have, the more complex the operation it becomes. So the more developed the product needs to be. However, unfortunately, again, they wanted, we had almost zero funding and no crazy big product to be able yeah. to build for that. So we gradually grew into building the solution for the larger group that we can then work with. And that was the path that we wanted to follow, but we had to do it naturally. If I were to look backwards now, and I could speak with Sebastian from three years ago, I see some benefits in going straight to the market segments you'd like to work with and trying to find shortcuts into doing that. So mm-hmm. we did we did spend one year plus in taking this approach of building slow, and we could have done it faster in a different way. So right now, we know exactly which one we want to work with, and we're directly building the best solution for that ICP. Interesting. And, and all of this was the bootstrapped and then that initial 150K that you got to build those initial Correct. mini products. Okay. So then what, what was the difference post product market fit and pre product market fit in terms of selling in and, and finding clients? Correct. So pre product market fit, it's all about exploring. It's about talking with as many clients as you can and understanding their pain point. And then going back to the exercise that I was saying before with having the bucket and trying to group them, it's about doing that. Similar to how investors have the pattern recognition and identifying founders, similar, you need to do the same with clients. So pre-product market fit, it's all about talking with as many as possible, putting them in those buckets, understanding the super insights that actually make them want to work with you, yeah. and then building for that. Post-product market fit, it's about selecting the segment that you, at that time you already have the segment, but going after that segment, then answering the questions of how do I get to as many clients that look like this as possible and as easy as you can. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And so what is your plan now for fueling this growth that, like you said, for series A, you needed to show a path to like much more higher growth. So in the initial phase that you were in, you said you just went and knocked on lots of different doors, right? Mm-hmm. How, how are you now setting up for scale? What, what does that look like in terms of finding Correct. your next hundred customers or thousand customers? Correct. So there are two, here you need to also understand if the business, if the startup is doing more enterprise sales versus SMBs, if it's, again, you can do self-serve or you have a different type of sales motion. So after you answer all of those, 
you'll have a, at least some, some answers. But for us, what, what was important is that in the early days, so after we had the product market fit, we already had a channel that was working really well. And this was one sub-segment of inbound that we were seeing great success and also conversion rates of 60% plus from demo to close, which is insane, but super grateful for the product team of what they built. Wow, 60% conversion. That's amazing. So what was that channel? What, what, what exactly did you do? That was basically inbound via paid and organic search. So those were, those were the two ones that were working really well for, for us. Now, as we, we got post to and started thinking about what are other, other channels on how we can meet our ideal customer persona, we started exploring basically what, what are those and testing out, doing a lot of baby testing to see which ones are the channels that work quicker and give better results. And in our case, because now we focus from enterprise and we know exactly the list of clients that we can work with, we went on the approach of doing outbound and ABM. So targeting directly the clients that we know we can, we can make their lives better and they need what we're building at the moment. Okay. So it's more like you have a named list of accounts and we are, you're having basically people calling. And how is that working? Have you got any initial metrics on conversions and things like that? Yes. Again, for us, might be the industry. And it's always the industry. As founders, we always want to have the, idea, the belief that we're the ones changing everything and our team can do absolutely everything. But the reality is that the market can make or break you. And choosing to be in a market that needs what you're building is the more important decision than everything else. So in our case, we, at least at the stage we are at, we identified around a hundred large corporate accounts that they really need what we're building today. And out of those, at the beginning of the year, we were working already with six of them. And now we crossed 15. So our goal is to, and again, keep in mind that we just hired last quarter. So for the sales team, before then it was just me and another colleague. So the goal is that by the end of uh, next year, we'll be working with most of them, or at least having a timeline and the when we're going to work with. Okay, great. This is really helpful. Okay. Well, let's talk about your team. You said that a lot of why you were able to push through those really hard times is because of the team that you had around you. Tell me a little bit about how you build that team because initially you were bootstrapping it, right? So how did you even get people to work for you? You said something that I'll start with this. So it's not for you, it's with us. It's working toward the goal that we all want. And well, so the, the first thing I'm trying to say here is that language is extremely important because you can't be a founder that says, oh, I care about the team, but then you say things like they work for me or these are my employees and they come with the negative connotations. And that's something that to my core, I really don't believe that. And I remember mo moments when, let's say we were winning a prize and going on stage and having to say the acceptance speech is that the only thing that I could think of in those moments is that it's not me, it's actually an entire team that's not here enjoying this moment that they deserve this prize. And this was one of the guiding principles from day one. If you ask me how I, we ended up thinking, like that's going to be a harder question to answer. Probably it's a lot of like different experiences from before. But in, in the first years, take even the first month when you literally have your funding, your client, you just have a dream of building something. And even that dream is not like super polished because that's the reality of things in early days. The only thing that keeps you going is the team that you're enjoying the journey with. And 
we treated every moment as such. I don't know, probably you've read Jeff Bezos and his book, but in his book, he said something super, super interesting. And it was the fact that if he ends up being 80 and looking backwards, he doesn't want to regret anything. And the way we shaped our first years was that, look, we don't have 20 to 30 or 20 to 40 years old. And at least if we do it once, let's do it with our 100% uh, belief. And this was what was guiding us every Friday, every Thursday, every moment of, uh, of the road. And it helped in, in a lot of situations. But the only way this works is if you're, if you have transparency at the foundation of building things. So putting a bit of structure into, into thought here. So one is the importance of language and um, aligning things with a the theme. And the second one is transparency because you can't expect people to be equals and to have the same amount of energy put into this if you don't share everything with them so that they can feel empowered to, to make decisions on their own if they want to or not want to be on this, on this journey. So initially, I assume that the people that were working with you and your co-founder are people that you knew through your network, people that worked with you in your previous company and so knew you. So they're really working on this idea because they know you. And in, in that time, were there anything specific or tactical that you did to create this culture that you're talking about of transparency and we're doing this together, we're going to enjoy it, we're going to do it right, regardless of the outcome? Were there any tactical things that you did that helped you to nurture that culture? Yes, there were, there were a couple of things. And indeed, they, they were people that we worked with before, and that helped a lot because they, we knew each other, so we knew what we mean when we say something. So there was a lot of trust and, and communication built there. But in a nutshell, if I would summarize it, it would be that you should treat everyone in the team as if they were a co-founder. Because at the end of the day, being a co-founder or coming later in the game is just a matter of your risk appetite. Mm. But at the end of the day, the energy that you need to invest will be most likely similar. So treating everyone as a co-founder was a super important aspect. And then the second one was never making a decision for someone, but sharing the problem and letting them decide. Uh, and this goes back to the fact that everyone in the team put their fingerprints on what digital is and digital is a result of what they do and how they want to make this work. Uh, and this is something that with everyone in the team, we discuss and, and it's helping at the end of the day, digital is no longer something that is just me and Roxandra thinking about it's 60 plus people defining everything. Yeah. yeah I love this idea of making everyone. Uh, feel like they're a co-founder. How do you do that? It's, it's probably just being a human being with them. But I, I think it goes back to a couple of things. One is decisions are made together. And uh, there is the philosophy of, again, some people are responsible of some areas of the company, so you would trust them more. Yeah. Um, and it was the same at the beginning and now even more. But we have people in sales that they should know more than I do. And I would trust them any time to make decisions on, in that regard. And this was the, the principle from day one. But again, going back, it's transparency, giving them all the information, not upholding things, showing that you care about them because they're investing their time into something that you convince them. So you're responsible for, for them and showing that this will, will pay off. 
I think there's the initial phase where you're like 20 to 30 people. That obviously is very different when you are 60 employees or whatever you are today. How do you maintain that culture when you're beyond your network and you're now growing exponentially? How, what are some of the things you're doing to keep that culture in your company? Okay, this is where things get rough. So after 20, 30 people, I think everything came natural. And it was, again, because of the fact we knew each other. We spent a lot of time after work. If that, you don't really have a concept of after work. But as the week progressed, we always did also uh, going out, socializing, doing sport together, so keeping everyone engaged. But once you pass 20 to 30 people, the challenge is that you no longer hire only through, through your network and you don't know everyone to the same degree. And as a result, communication starts breaking down. And especially if you have people in different geographies. So we, we're a remote first company. And again, I can share also a couple of tricks on what helped us in the remote first mindset. But once you have someone from the US and someone from Europe and someone from South Africa, they say the same word, but they mean something totally different yeah. all the time. And this was so frustrating at some point because we had let's say someone from the U.S. where there's the whole idea of how you communicate feedback and the U.S. is known for having the, the classical feedback sandwich yeah. where they say something good, the actual constructive feedback, and then something uh, positive again to, re, to bring back your morale. However, in Europe, if you do this, and again, Europe has its own different peculiarities, but in Europe, if you start with the good first, people stop listening. As frustrating as this sounds, but that's the truth. And in Europe, you need to start always with what the constructive and then letting them off on a positive note. But if you start with positive, then they'll be like, okay, I'm good. I don't need to do anything. Thank you for saying that. And this was something that hurt us so much at, again, when, once we started having more culture in the team and it took a while until we realized that that's happening. So now what we did is we defined a digital way of talking about things. So if we talk about customers, we no longer say happy or un unhappy or things like this. We mic them on a scale from zero to 10. And be, will they go out and recommend to their friend? And everything sticks below is they, they won't and that's something we need to tackle. But now we have clear number analytical type of approach because if not, we'll always end up saying someone in the US might say happy, which actually is a six. And you'll miss that information through the, through the lines. That's really great advice. Any other tactical things like that, that you can share with the audience on how you're trying to build the culture that you want in your company? Yeah, I would maybe share first a couple of things on remote that really helped us. And we can go back to the other one. But on remote, we realized early on is that in life, everything has a cost. And the cost of remote, when you work, and in the office, you have the cost of real estate, but in remote environments, you have the cost of time that you need to invest in building the team. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that we now, even from day one, we always allocated maybe the daily send-ups or weekly meetings in which people have the chance to connect and feel that they're not alone. In other words, the weekly meeting for us, at least we say it's an alignment meeting. But the reality is that it's a meeting where people just get the chance to see that they're not alone working towards this. And it sometimes can be a platform for people just to share something cool or just to share progress on what they're doing. But it, this contact 
and seeing everyone. And this really made the difference. Besides this, a couple of other meetings that are really great any remote company to have is monthly learnings, letting people share things they've learned. It can be, you can have different formats from like everyone sharing one small thing and going through everyone or having one or three or one to three people that share something that they've learned throughout the last month. And it can be, it doesn't need to be only digital focus. It can be anything in their day-to-day life. And this even makes it even better because you get to know that there's someone behind the camera that you always see. There's the person with interest and hobbies and, and other things. Oh, nice. I like that. I want to ask one more question. And that is, it's just as important to hire the right person when you're trying to build a certain type of culture in a company. And I was wondering whether you could share some of your playbook on how to hire right, some maybe tactical advice for questions you ask in your interviews to get to the essence of, will this person be the right cultural fit in my company? Yeah. So to do this right, I think first you need to definitely define your values first. And I, it was really later down the uh, line when I realized that she values is what filters people on the way in and out of the company. So once you get your values done and don't forget to repeat them heavily to the team, that was another thing that we did pretty well was that we were, even though we talked about something even the day before, we were always repeating it until the moment it became common knowledge for, for everyone. But going back to hiring. So after you get the, the values uh, you're going to have for each of those values, you're going to have some questions that you're going to ask. So again, I, instead of giving general advice on this, I'll, I'll share a couple of other questions that. Um, I started asking in recently that are, I found really helpful. And one of them is when you talk with a new hire that a candidate that seems really promising. One thing I do is, and this is for, from the book with hiring for attitude, very good book, but he, he suggests that first ask the name of the previous manager and then ask what would the previous manager say about working with, with a candidate before. Then do the same for the previous hiring manager and the previous thing. Go down at least two, three, or four job experiences that the candidate had. Mm-hmm. And at the end, ask if they're okay with you contacting them. Mm-hmm. And what this does, it A, will filter out if someone was not honest about what they're saying. And the second one is that when you ask this for two, three in a row, people can't they will lie to one at one for one of them, sir. They will lie for the second one, but it's hard to create lies on lies for a multiple string of, of experiences in the past. And this has been super helpful in understanding persona. There's another one that I do is lead the conversation with actually letting them. So every time I have a one on one recruitment, the first 10 minutes, it's about them asking questions. Because when we ask questions, we already prime them towards a certain direction. And I'd really love to know them as what's their top of mind interest. And the, by leaving them in the first 10, 15 minutes to just ask anything they want from getting to know us as a company, our experience, plan, anything, it gives the opportunity for them to control and to show you what they actually care about. And this has been another really good one in understanding how they are as, as potential new colleagues. Fabulous. I love it. I think on that note, we'll end the formal part of this interview, but I do have an informal 
rapid fire round that I like to ask to get to know you better. And I usually start with, what's your favorite book? You already said one um, about the hiring, but what's your favorite book? It could be fiction or nonfiction, just something that, you know, you would like to share. Got it. I don't have a couple here, but okay, I'll go with you. So one is definitely never split the difference from Prit Boss. It has 21 super good tactical advice that you can apply in conversation with clients, team members, anything. And I, I can honestly say that it saved us probably 50 clients from leaving us in the early days when we had zero product and zero anything. So that was really a term book. And the second one is one that actually one of our clients recommended. It's called The Power of Moments. And it's how do you create memorable experiences for clients. Really good book. Okay, never split the difference. Yeah, I've heard that one before, but I haven't heard the power moments. Okay. And second question, what is uh, your productivity tool? Any tool that you use to keep yourself productive or tip or hack? Oh, easy. That that one is Notion by far. Notion, then like if anyone from Notion here, thank you for building an amazing tool. It's absolutely awesome. And you just put like, how do you use it to make yourself productive? Initially, early, early days of Notion, I was just building templates like crazy afterwards. I saw the community and I started learning from the best and how they build their templates. But right now I have a, a weekly agenda that I, again, I create new agendas every week. And you have a top of mind for the week, top of mind for each day. Like what's, if you only, if you do only one task that day, which is the one that will really make the difference. And then each day has a series of reviews and you also have themes for each day. So Notion can help you really build everything. And I'm a big fan of uh, using that not only as a personal, but also as a team knowledge base for everything. Awesome. Perfect. And your favorite European city? Ooh, that's a tough one. So let's see. One that's popular and most likely people will also is Barcelona. Like I, I lived there for six years. It's an amazing place. Great quality of life. However, if we're still in, in Europe, I would say London for connection, ambitious people, great networking and learning. And another one that not a lot of people would probably recommend because it's not that popular, it's Yacht, the, the city where I'm from, but it's a great mix of modernism, tech, even romanticism if you want to explore the city. So it has like everything in one and exactly on the border of, of Europe on the east side. Oh, fabulous. Ah. And one more place for me to put in my list of places to go. Fabulous. And my last question is a quote, like either your quote or a quote by someone else that means a lot to you or that you say or that you live by or that you tell your employees your favorite yeah. quote. There's always, like the way I see life is that I try to write the story of what's going to be written on my tombstone. And if there's one thing that I, I really want to have written there is that I didn't give up. So the quote goes with, goes within the lines of nothing is impossible as long as we keep on trying. I love it. I love that. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Sebastian, for coming on my podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you and Digital the best. Thank you, Anita. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this Stay alive. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, keep working.